This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 15th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Rick Perry and other Republicans are taking aim at Rand Paul for his something less than interventionist foreign policy. Justin Logan, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, evaluates the debate. Well, there's a certain amount of Uh, abstractness and lack of specifics that's normally the case in politics but is particularly the case in this instance. So a lot of what's going on and of course it isn't just Rick Perry who's attacked Rand Paul. Uh, Chris Christie has attacked Rand Paul. Obviously the entire Cheney family has been perpetually attacking Rand Paul. Um, at a very high level of abstraction and for the most part without many specifics. He's been called uh, an isolationist, unrealistic, et cetera, et cetera. So part of what's going on here is that a significant portion of the GOP, what's been called the GOP donor class, big money guys that can give money to – and they're mostly guys – to the GOP like really hawkish foreign policy, uh, both globally and particularly in the Middle East where Paul has made some modest noises about being perhaps less interventionist than Dick Cheney. So part of it is these candidates trying to appeal uh, to those donors to get uh, uh, interest from those donors in, you know, early on in this pre-campaign campaign. The interesting thing about what's happening is that Paul, by pretty much everybody's estimation, is closer to where the public is on foreign policy. And there's a dilemma in the sense that foreign policy rarely is salient to the public. Rarely does even a presidential election rise or fall on the basis of foreign policy. So it's a little bit of a an irrelevance to talk about where the public is, I guess. But the public is closer to Paul, near as you can pin down Rick Perry's foreign policy views, um, than they are to Perry. So again, this is going on pitched at a very high level of abstraction um, without terribly many specifics. But what's interesting is that when you do get closer to specifics, um, Paul is actually significantly closer to where the public is. Rand Paul and uh, Rick Perry sort of duked it out uh, in sort of opposing op-eds. And again, Rick Perry uses this term that's supposed to tar libertarians broadly, uh, liberals as well, often as isolationist. And that it, that's just seems to be the refrain. Sure. Well, you know, the first rule of politics is use what works. And people know that they don't like isolationism. Even people who have what could plausibly be described as isolationist views view the term isolationist as icky and something to be reviled. And that's probably not a coincidence since it was termed originally by Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, one of the first real thoroughgoing American imperialists at the turn of the 20th century uh, and is, is sort of a heuristic in the public mind for not being freaked out enough about Adolf Hitler, uh, which is where you know what, what that term denotes for people or connotes rather um, is the interwar period, the 1930s, when the country was too slow to recognize uh, the real menace that was posed um, by Hitler. So I think that term may be losing some of its punch uh, because it's been so overused. There's a bit of crying wolf um, that goes on. But what's interesting, and I mentioned this before, is when you get closer to specifics, Paul sort of wins by default, right? What he wants is not to debate the meaning of the term isolationist or do whatever. What he wants to do 
is to have Dick Cheney be the face of the other side of Republican foreign policy. And Dick Cheney seems all too willing to play that role. Um, there was a recent quote, I, I don't think it's apocryphal, where Cheney, when he was still vice president, apparently told a, a, a group of senior executives at Goldman Sachs that you know the original plan was to invade both Iraq and Iran at the same time and his biggest regret uh, as vice president was not uh, having done that. So if, if that's what's happening in the background of American politics, Rand Paul can just sort of be not that, right? I mean, the, the, the American public knows, you know, that's salient to them, right? A, a ground invasion of Iraq and Iran at the same time. People don't like that idea. So Paul, I think his instincts have been pretty good. Um, and so there's been some garment rending among wonks about all of this Reagan quote trade. I'm Reagan. No, I'm Reagan. You know, sort of wrestling over the little Reagan action figure. Um, but that's how politics works, right? Wonks tend to overstate the importance of wonky arguments and to understate uh, the really crude heuristics that voters use to figure out what they think about stuff. And what conservatives, what Republicans know is Reagan and Reagan good and whatever is Reagan is good. So I think Paul is smart in doing something that I as a sometime intellectual uh, am aggravated by because he's not appealing to me, right? He's not, you know, he's he's running, I think, for president. So, you know, there's a lot of this that's going on that you say, why why are we having you know this these fusillades of Reagan quotes going across uh, uh, the barricades? And the answer is because voters very rarely use wonky arguments to figure out what they think about issues that are at bottom wonky. We are now more than two years out from a presidential election and as you said, elections don't typically uh, turn on foreign policy. So isn't it good that we have, we're having this debate at least for arguably the soul of the Republican Party with respect to foreign policy right now? Well, it's good that we're having it at all. I mean, I, you know, sort of glasnost on the right uh, on foreign policy is a good thing for someone like me who thinks that right-wing foreign policy has really been a mess uh, for some decades now. The interesting thing, of course, not having to defend an incumbent, uh, you know, but in 2008, John McCain was running, which was like a more juiced up George W. Bush in the first place. But eight years of an incumbent president creates its own sort of inertia, right? Being a good Republican or being a good conservative really for the Bush administration meant supporting the Bush doctrine, supporting the Iraq war. And you saw a tremendous amount of conservative appreciation for a guy like Joe Lieberman who had almost nothing conservative about him other than being a big-time war hawk. So that's been unraveled by eight years of Barack Obama being the hawk in chief. And now there's a considerable amount of ideological ferment on the right both among people like Paul who are trying tentatively to reckon with the idea that the Iraq war might kind of slightly been a mistake, um, but also by other people on other issues. So two points on this. One, the bigger challenge for Rand Paul is not necessarily to iron out all the wonky stuff, although I do think he should be thinking about 
a cadre of wonks who could deal with the sort of Washington media and the conservative wonk establishment. But he needs to fit his vision of American foreign policy into conservative nationalism. And there is a conservative nationalism that goes along with non-interventionism that basically says if we go into the world and screw around with all of these countries and peoples who have their own pathologies, we'll catch their pathologies, right? Um, and this was something that was present at the founding of the United States. Uh, the founders thought that if we were too deeply enmeshed in European politics, all the nasty uh, statist things about European politics would come uh, to North America. And that was a good reason for staying out of European politics. I think you can make an even more persuasive version of that argument today about the Middle East or what have you. But Paul needs to figure out how to make a pitch to voters, not necessarily that you know this or that defense cut or this or that failure to intervene is correct on wonky grounds, but that being a good conservative means thinking about this issue the way I think about it. So it's a sort of framing thing that he needs to deal with. The other interesting thing that's going on is the, the, the real failure of the conservative establishment to produce uh, defense intellectuals in anything other than a hawkish conservative or neoconservative mold. There's this whole movement of reform conservatism, reform conservatives so-called that are really sort of uh, pulling at a lot of – or poking at rather a lot of conservative sacred cows and saying, look, this welfare program could be sort of tinkered with to make it more conservative and um, you know, we should get you – know, sort of come to grips with the American welfare state. And the irony is that, you know, to my mind, there's as much, if not more, room for reforming conservatism on foreign policy uh, than there is on on any other issue. And yet, there's been a, to my mind, egregious failure among so-called reform conservatives to do really anything to think about modestly uh, reforming the way conservatism looks at foreign policy. So it really is. Uh, Rand Paul, for the most part, out there by himself, uh, fending off attacks from both other prospective presidential contenders and basically the entire conservative ideas establishment with the exception of some dissidents and dissident publications like the American Conservative or what have you. So it's going to be interesting to see whether um, donors, whether conservative money people have interest in sort of trying to support uh, a counter infrastructure to the enormous hawkish and neoconservative infrastructure that's been built up over the past several decades. Justin Logan is Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.